Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Dalbo Rohaj and I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm joined by my friends. Giselle Donnelly, also at the American Enterprise Institute, and... Yulia Zhoja with the Middle East Institute, Georgetown and George Washington Universities. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace and security that have erupted along a line running from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. Our special guest today is Tamar Jacobi, the president of Opportunity America. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Tamar, um, you've been working, you're running a non-profit that's dedicated to promoting economic opportunity for people in the United States primarily. Yet, after the outbreak of um, the war in Ukraine, after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, this spring you decided to come to Poland and you spent some time in Poland and in Ukraine learning about the situation, writing uh, longer and shorter pieces about what's happening on the ground, getting involved in community life and, and in efforts aiming at helping refugees. I mean, I wonder if you could just you know walk us through the thought process that led to that decision and also if you could maybe highlight uh, the most salient experiences you've had thus far. Well, I wish I could call it a thought process. It was really a kind of personal compulsion. George Orwell, when he went to Catalonia, the way he described it, he said, in the circumstances, to do anything else seemed inconceivable. And somehow that's just how I felt. Um, I, I'm not a volunteer by nature. I'm not kind of an altruistic person. I don't p- pick up the trash in my neighborhood. You know, I don't do anything. Um, but when the war broke out, I just felt, I think I read a story about Americans coming to fight. And then I read another story about somebody, media story, about somebody driving from Holland to pick people up from the Netherlands to pick people up on the border. And I just said, if those people can do it, I can do it. And I think, you know, I wanted to help. I think at some deeper level, I wanted to witness history. I mean, I'm a, you know, kind of intellectual, I'm a thinker, so witnessing history in some way was as important as health. They were both part of what I what I wanted to do. And so I, I was like a person with a demon trying to find a place. I just had to do it. And, um, you know, my friends and family said, are you mad? You know, what? <laughs> You're going to Poland? What? <laughs> and um, I uh, it, wasn't easy. it wasn't easy to find a place to volunteer because I'm not, many people said to me, you're not a doctor and you don't speak Ukrainian. You're just going to get in the way. But I found a, um, an organization here in Krakow in Poland, uh, actually the Jewish Community Center here in Krakow, which is, you know, 40 minute drive to Auschwitz, which had been devoted to rebuilding Jewish life in the shadow of the Holocaust, which pivoted when the war started. And by the time I found them was serving a thousand refugees a day. And they said, you know, you sound smart. We'll find something for you to do. You know, come on. So the next day I got on a plane and I got here. And at the first meeting, I was really, I was prepared to unpack boxes or ladle soup or whatever, you know, to do whatever was needed. But we had a meeting and I said, um, do you interview the refugees? Do you talk to them about their experience or about what they need even from you? You know, how do you know you're giving them food? Maybe they need you know, diapers, like, do you talk to them? And they said, well, we don't really have time for that. We have an intake form, but we have a thousand, we serve a thousand a day. So I said, well, let me undertake a series of in-depth interviews. So that's what I did for the first month I was here. And that's what produced this little book. I talked to 45 people in depth about their experience. And you come in with questions in a second, but, you know, 
part of what I wondered as I was doing that, am I really helping anyone? You know, I'm, I'm like doing these interviews and it's journalism. It's what I know how to do. Is it really useful? You know, I came here to try to be useful. But I think in the end, what after a few of the interviews, after a week or so of it, I started to feel that it was actually useful to people, not because I was doing anything special or because, you know, I'm certainly no kind of therapist, but there was something about telling their stories that people seem to find very meaningful. You know, they had just literally come through hell, usually very chaotic experiences that were kind of hard to make sense of. And the way I sort of came to understand it is that when you're in an experience like that, you feel alone. And, you know, we feel there's no one there to help you or even witness it, kind of. And just having someone who kind of wasn't there with you that you can tell the story to and try to organize the chaos was sort of useful. Because, I mean, 45 people told me their, you know, these amazing stories and there were no trust issues. And, you know, it, it, was, it was astonishing, really, how much they wanted to talk. So I came away thinking, well, perhaps I'd done something useful. And, you know, if I could capture their voices and tell their stories, perhaps that would also be useful. I was once told, though, for referring to a book I've written as the book. You should, you should for the benefit of our listeners and for the benefit of, of, of promoting your work, we should say that the book is called Displaced, the Ukrainian Refugee Experience, and it's available on Amazon and, and from every bookseller worthy of the name. Well, thank you, Delbert. Good point. They do teach you that in, in Publicity 101. So thank you for that. Very helpful. And it is, what it is, is, and it's just out, you know, the last week or so, it's, it's, it's not me analyzing the people. It's the voices and stories of, of, of 45 refugees in their, in, in their, all of their glorious human difference. And, you know, what's, what's great about it is there's, they're just ordinary people. You know, this could be, there are no heroes, there are no villains, there are no larger than life characters. It's just, you know, the HVAC technician from Busha and the, the engineer from someplace else and the building manager from someplace else. And it could be you and me. And, I, you know, I kept wondering as I heard the stories and, and wrote them up, you know, what, would I have been able to do anything like what they did? And would, would I have anything like the resilience that they showed? The war has gone on much longer than almost everybody anticipated. That sort of must be true in some way. Uh, for you as well. So I'd be interested to, to understand how your perspective has evolved over the last eight months or whatever it's been. And also, obviously, how the stories of the refugees have changed uh, over that period of time. Have there been phases? I mean, uh, what do you reckon? So, so let me first talk about the length of the war, and then I'll come back to the phases of, on the refugees, because really good question. Um, so I, the next thing I did after I did those interviews was I went into Ukraine and I spent a month in the city of Irpin, which, as you may know, is the city between Busha and Kiev. And the significance is that Busha was captured, you know, in two days and occupied, and obviously horrible things happened there, but not too much fighting. The artillery never got within range of Kiev. And what stopped them was Irpin and some other towns like Irpin and about the same distance from the city. And so I spent a month there in June, right, well after the battle, but in June interviewing people there and getting the story of what happened in the battle. And by then it was really clear to me that the Ukrainians were going to win, fight till the end and they were going to do whatever it was going to take to win. <laughs> so if I'd had any doubts, you know, in February kind of, or even March, by the time I got to Irpin, I understood the the, really the strength of the Ukrainian desire for independence and to beat back the Russians and to not be swallowed up by the Russians and the kind of thousand, you know, the thousand years of history <laughs> that go, that have fueled that desire. And 
since then, it has not surprised me that they're going to be willing to fight till the very end. And, you know, we hope it's a happy end. But that's kind of where I, my understanding of the length of the war kind of came, was seeing the determination. And not just of fighters, you know, of priests who were willing to drive into the shelling to rescue people and, and people who were willing to stay there and organize the basements for the people, few people that remained. Um, but then the refugees, so the, the big flood of refugees was in the first, was in March, really. And already by May, it was about a fifth of what it had been in, in March. Like the flow very dropped off very dramatically. People are still coming, but it's many, many, many fewer. And many people go back and forth now. So in the first six months, or the first three months or four months, I don't know how long, there's probably no clear demarcation, the needs were blankets, warm clothes, hot food, a temporary place to stay. Uh, you know, then it got a little more complicated. I mean, one of the most poignant things I've ever seen is women getting underwear from a distribution point. Like, you know, they'd come out with one change of clothes and they didn't have any underwear. And so here was a humanitarian aid distribution point where they could, oh, somebody thought we need, probably need underwear. And they were, you know, kind of pawing over the underwear. So so those immediate, and Poles were amazing in that early phase, right? Like Polish civil society so rose to the fore. Um, you know, people taking people into their houses. I mean, you got a little, you got $5 a day if you housed a refugee, not enough money to make it worthwhile, just enough money to sort of help you. And in the in Krakow, where I am, 17,000 people <laughs> applied to take somebody into their home. And those are the people who took the money. You know, probably other people did it as well. You know, this the whole city when I first got here was just like a big welcome mat. There were Ukrainian flags everywhere and volunteers everywhere and big signs on the on the city hall, you know, saying you're welcome and signs in my supermarket saying the little shop where I shopped in the early days, there was a basket on your way out and it said, um, you know, take something out of your basket and put something here for the Ukrainians. I mean, it was just the Polish welcome was really moving. Now we're six months, seven months, eight, nearly eight months into it. And it's not so much that, I mean, there is a cooling of Polish ardor, for want of a better word. You know, people have sort of gone on to their lives. They're still very supportive, but they're not, you know, in the early days, everyone was doing something. Everyone was making hot soup and running it to the border or whatever. You know, everyone you met literally had some story like that. Now it's, it's a smaller group of people, but it's also the more important thing is that the needs have changed. Like people now have temporary housing, they have underwear, <laughs> they have, you know, they, 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 they still need groceries, you know, some of them, but some of them have jobs. Supposedly about, we don't know exactly, we don't know anything about the numbers, the numbers are really vague, but we think maybe as many as 25, 30% of the women in Krakow have jobs. But now the kids need schooling, the adults need probably job training, many adults need language classes, they need permanent housing, and all that's much harder to provide than a blanket or a coat or hot soup. <laughs> and it's, but the challenge remains, and this is one thing we haven't talked about yet, you know, people don't know what their plans are. And in some way, that's the most challenging part of being one of these refugees, right? I mean, I remember during the pandemic, you know, not knowing like how long was I going to have to live in my house arrest, you know? <laughs> I mean, these people don't know whether they've come out for this short stay or whether this is kind of the first day of the rest of their lives. And it's, it's, for some, it is just a short stay, and some have already gone back. I can track 23 of the 45 I interviewed for my book, Displaced, the Ukrainian Refugee Experience. And of those 23, 12 are still in Krakow, nine have gone back into Ukraine, and three have moved on to a third country, mostly the UK. So 40% have already gone back. 
really interesting. Of the, of the others, you know, it's just hard to know wh where they're going to end up. Are they waiting for the war to end and then they'll go back? When the war ends, are they still going to stay in Poland? Some will, some won't. People don't really know. Many don't have a clear way to think about it even. You know, it's, 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 those are big decisions. So yes, we're in a new phase and complicating it all is this uncertainty. The uncertainty of being in a refugee in a country right near your own country where the war may end and it may be possible to go back. Another complicated factor is, as you point out in your recent Wall Street Journal piece that we'll link to in the in the show notes, that obviously these refugees are disproportionately women, very often with children. Absolutely. And so the idea, oh, like whenever asylum seekers or immigrants come, we'll have to get them jobs and get them integrated into society. It just works with with greater difficulty when you have when you have a population of women and mothers rather than when you have a sort of normal more normal demographic and unitary families coming no absolutely and it also complicates the uncertainty because if your husband or, or your boyfriend is you know 300 miles away or 500 miles away you know a lot of you're waiting to go back to them or are you waiting for them to come out and join you you know it's it's it makes it much more complicated so yes no no question it's it's hard to you know it's all it's poland has very low unemployment rate and there are jobs for less skilled people you know most refugees take a kind of a down step a step or down the the, the mobility ladder when they get jobs many of the ukrainians are willing to do that i mean one of the stories that in the book that really one of the people who i grew most attached to and still talk to. She was literally a rocket scientist in Ukraine. She was a, 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 a she worked on rocketry, component parts and engineer at a state laboratory. And she escaped with her two young children and she got to Poland and what was her first job? She was stocking shelves in a supermarket. And then she thought, well, I'll go to Ireland. Maybe my job prospects will be better. I don't know why she thought Ireland. I guess her visa worked there. She got to Ireland. What was she doing in Ireland? Stocking shelves in a supermarket two days a week and cleaning the floor in a medical center the other three days. And she now actually has a slightly better job and got in the last week. But when I last spoke to her, you know, I asked her to talk about this. And she said, um, I'm doing what I have to do. I'm feeding my children. I'm surviving. It's, I'm completely fine with it. <laughs> I can't even remember what it's like to be a rocket scientist. Well, at least at least she didn't introduce rocketry <laughs> to to the Irish conflict. Fair enough, but um, but yes, yeah, fair enough, fair enough, fair enough. You know, they need jobs, and they. I mean, to me, it's the challenge is you know, there's great variation among them, right? Of sort of agency and realism about their circumstances, and the ones who um, see that even if it's only temporary, it's probably better to work. I think are in much better situation than the ones who say it's temporary. I don't know what to do. I'm going to sit on my cot all day long. And there, there are some like that. I visited places where people are sitting on their cots all day long through the day, and that's pretty depressing. And you know, you paint a very evocative picture of you know sort of what the refugee experience uh, is like, and and you kind of have a large enough sample size. So this may be. I hope it's a fair question. Kind of a gruesome one. Did any of your 45 people find themselves in a situation where a family was widowed by a killed soldier on the front? And obviously that would be an awful situation under any circumstance, but on top of being a refugee, it must be, uh, you know, very, very devastating. Did you have such experience? And Oh, I had an airplane. I met someone whose best, a soldier whose best friend had died in front of him. 
I didn't, I haven't met people widowed. The one woman here, the one of these poignant stories, I mean, these stories, you can't make them up, right? If you, if you made this up, people would say you're exaggerating. You know, one of the stories in the book is, um, is a, a kind of middle-aged woman who was a building manager in Saltivka, which is the neighborhood of Harkiv that, you know, has been basically destroyed. And she had a pregnant daughter. She has. The daughter was pregnant then. The daughter's still alive. The daughter was, was eight months pregnant when the war began. And so their first, obviously, horror was, what are we going to do with this daughter? You know, how are we going to help this daughter? Are we going to get her out? Can we put her in a maternity hospital? There was, it, was, it was one of the, you know, there were a lot of anxiety, a lot of, I won't say adventures, but there was a lot, you know, there was a month in a, in, there was a month when they were both in basements, different basements. And then finally the daughter got out, a very harrowing trip. And then finally the mother followed her, a very harrowing trip. And they got to Krakow and the daughter gave birth. And, you know, everybody kind of, exhaled and they thought, well, we made it out, and, you know, not just one trip out. I mean, the trips are all awful. You know, you're on crowded trains and you're waiting in the platform and you know, the bus is zigzagging around the bombardments. I mean, everybody's travel story is awful. They had two of them. They got out, they had the baby. The next day, well, no, a couple days later, the, do- the young woman calls the grandmother who lives actually near between Kharkiv and Izium, you know, places we all know now. And, um, yeah, and, sh- and she says to the grandmother, um, you know, I'm holding the baby, you know, don't worry, we'll be back soon, you'll see the baby, um, you know, just hold on for a little while longer. And the grandmother says, you don't see what I see out the window. Um, I don't think so. And sure enough, two or three days later, a neighbor called, the old woman is dead. We don't know if she was hit by, by um, shrapnel from a shell or if a shockwave knocked her down. But, and these people, you know, the, the, the middle-aged woman and the young woman, they're a million miles away. And um, the neighbors saw the woman, the dead woman in the yard, but she, there were two, the Russians were too close. She couldn't go out and get her. So um, my, you know, subject, whatever we want to call her, Tatiana, she actually managed to get to Polish authorities and have a look at a satellite image of the of the yard. And sure enough, there's oh. a dead body in the yard. But, but she doesn't know what happened to the older woman. She doesn't know where the... So then the woman is buried. Um, and meanwhile, there's this baby. <laughs> you know, this life is regenerating in in Krakow. But, but this, and, and so the last I heard from this woman, she had actually gone back to try to find where the body was buried and what had happened. I haven't heard from her since then. I don't know what she found or what happened, but that's the closest I've come to. It's um, close enough. Yeah. Switch gears a tiny little bit. Um, you know, maybe two million uh, refugees in, in, in Poland, which means that there must be tens of thousands of children uh, who should go to school. And, and obviously that raises challenges for Poland's schools and education system, which has not been necessarily geared towards accommodating kids coming from, you know, with a different language, from a slightly different educational system. So, so in, in, in your Wall Street Journal piece, you sort of describe the sink or swim approach that is being used towards easing Ukrainian children into speaking and understanding Polish. The two languages are similar, but they're not identical. It's safe to assume that most Ukrainians as as they grow up are not exposed to any significant amount of of polish it just there's a sheer force of the n- numbers and the absence of 
a sort of professional preparation for a situation like this on 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 on, on the Polish part makes this makes this necessary. Can you just walk us through what maybe the the other challenges might be within the educational system and the sort of strains that that this is putting on the system and whether this is likely to provoke any kind of reaction? I'm asking this specifically because I was actually talking to a Polish group recently and and it was one of the subjects that they raised in the context interestingly enough of the eu funding that 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 poland should be receiving that like obviously poland is hosting this this large refugee population and finds itself in dire straits economically like other european countries and and therefore that sort of increases the salience of of that common european pot of money uh that poland should be getting a significant chunk of so so if you could maybe you know d- describe what you know the challenges are in poland and 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 how sort of Polish debate is evolving on. Yeah, so I mean, you meet a lot of people who say, um, I mean, first of all, I don't speak Polish, right? So I'm I'm kind of handicapped in, I don't have a good exposure to the Polish media. So, the, you know, what debates are happening in the Polish media, I'm not entirely sure. I sort of know my neighbors and, you know, people I kind of know in Krakow. Everybody you meet here, and, you know, in the course of my reporting stories, everybody you meet here sort of says, well, there's other people who are having you know, feeling backlash or, you know, st- feeling less welcoming or feeling, you know, starting to feel resentful of the refugees or something. But it's always a somebody else. Like, I haven't met anyone. I haven't I haven't had anyone. No one's confessed to. Uh... Yeah. <laughs> and um, nobody and, and the people who actually they don't they don't, you know, and mostly what they, they say, well, there's some fatigue. But you, and but you don't hear about a lot about backlash. And the teachers in the school, so I did wrote this piece for the journal where I did visit several schools and talk to several parents. The teachers in the schools also say, you know, there was a little uncertainty at the beginning, but we did what we, the things we arranged were enough to reassure the parents and we haven't seen any backlash. So, I mean, you know, it, it's almost too good to be true that they really couldn't, that we're, that we're seeing mostly just fatigue, not active backlash. But I haven't seen, I haven't yet, you know, face on seen active backlash. The challenge in the schools I mean, again, it's such a challenge of are they going to stay? It's all it always comes back to right? what's what what are, what are the what is the future going to bring? Because if you're going to stay here, then there's every incentive to learn Polish, to go to a Polish school, to move ahead in a Polish school. If you think you're going back, you might want to study online in your Ukrainian school, which is what a lot of people are doing. A lot of children are apparently doing. So, you know, if you if you look at the numbers, I think it's I think. You know, again, we don't really know the numbers, but you could guess that they're up to 20,000, maybe not 20,000, maybe 15,000 children in Krakow. Well, there's only like four or 5,000 in the schools. So where are they? Are they just not in school or are they studying online or what are they doing? So that's that's one before you even get to what's happening in the school. There's the question of are they going to school? And um, I don't know the answer to that. I would like to sort of dig in deeper and find the answer to that. In the schools, as you point out, the biggest challenge is language. You know, for little kids, I think that sink or swim approach works pretty well. You know, even, I mean, I witnessed this in the U.S., you know, the bilingual education debate. You know, it can be useful to give them a first quick course in, in, the, in the native language, but then you do want to get them into the mainstream as quickly as possible. The longer you keep them out, the, the more challenges you have. And in some Polish schools, they have that. They have what they call these prep classes where you get a first initial burst of Polish and then you put into the mainstream. And the question I think it's where it's harder, it's for like high school kids because high school kids aren't going to learn the language that quickly and knowing the language and keeping up, you know, if you need to pass your 
algebra exam at the end of the year, you don't move on to the next grade, bunch bigger challenge. So I don't, I don't know, you know, I think there are challenges there. I think the schools and the parents and the kids are just kind of going at it the best they can. Um, you know, would it be good to have more money for, for more Polish language classes? Yes. But there's also a whole debate here about what, I mean, there's, there is, and you do read this in the, in the, even in the English language, Polish kind of debate, people who say, well, we shouldn't be putting them in Polish schools and asking them to learn Polish. I mean, there's a kind of a, you know, separatist versus integrationist sort of political debate. I mean, I literally read an article that said, you know, integration is a further trauma for these children. I mean, I don't believe. It's the alternative, possibly. Getting them to integrate and learn Polish to go to school is, a further, is inflicting further trauma on them. I mean, I just don't see it that way. But I think some... You know, I interviewed the the assistant, what do we ever call her in English, I guess it would be deputy mayor here in Krakow, and she, she was sort of agnostic. She said, well, if the parents wanted separate classes where they were separate, we would try to do that. But most of the parents seem to want um, classes where the children are integrating into the mainstream, and so we're trying to provide that. And I mean, I think that is is much the best answer to the degree they can pull it off, and if they could have some more money to um, for help with that, I think that would that would be the ideal answer. So I'm I'm you know I, I I mean I can't speak to the debate about how we should how the EU should be allocating its aid, but places like Poland that are bearing the brunt of of coping and welcoming and you know doing what they're doing. It certainly seems to me deserve aid of schooling with schooling and schooling and job training <laughs> seem to me the biggest the biggest needs there's one question though, that you may be able to shed some light on you know we've seen in a variety of circumstances all over the world in these past decades how easy it is for a crisis and particularly a war to overwhelm the humanitarian and development infrastructures, be they private or government or you name it. Just be interested in your perception. And, and, and this, you know, obviously the people who do this work are, you know, hugely dedicated and self-sacrificing and stuff like that, but they don't seem to be able to play very well together uh, for one reason or another. So I'd just be interested in your observations about how the, you know, resettlement effort uh, you know, do you think it could be improved, uh, you know, other than, you know, you know, are there structural issues that need to be addressed? I think Poland was really onto something. And I think both the UK and the US are also moving in this direction, which is kind of away from the big NGOs and the big government sanctioned in America, they're called VALAGs, agencies doing the resettlement and toward getting civil society and families doing the resettlement. And you know, you see this, people who have a kind of a sponsor here, you know, and they get a lot more than a house and, and, and some meals. They get someone takes them, shows them how to get go to the doctor and shows them how to fill up their SIM card and sort of makes them feel comfortable in the shopping mall and helps their kids find a school when they don't have one and just sort of gives them the confidence to to kind of be here and feel comfortable here. And there are a lot of things to work. I've talked to American sponsors who have not had such a great experience. I think there's probably quirks to work out in this model. It's a brand new model. And I don't think, I'm not sure Poland even thought of it as a model. They just sort of said, well, we'll pay some people to bring people in their homes. But but the UK and the US definitely think of it as a model now. They're kind of testing a model. And I think we're going to see a lot of research 
in years ahead. It doesn't mean there's no role for the NGOs, um, but I think you know if we can engage civil society to be part of this, you know, in, as it happens spontaneously in Poland, and then you know using policy and incentives to kind of drive a sponsorship model of reception and resettlement, that, that's a that's a good direction in my view, and I I. I advocate, you know, I'd like to see more of that. And I'd like to think about, how, you know, one of the things I want to think about is going forward is how to look at that carefully and see what works and what doesn't work and how can we sort of improve and go in that direction. Such a fascinating observation because it's been the case in in, in sort of development economics that people who looked at the effectiveness, it's a very different context from refugees, obviously, but when you look at the sort of effectiveness of different interventions in the context of poor countries, uh, one of the interventions that that tends to generate a massive rate of return is when you give people cash and mentorship. And and and, and so, so, so the sort of rate of return on these kinds of interventions when they've been done in, in a sort of randomized trial context tends to be 500% or so. So, 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 so that seems to be sort of consistent with, with that experience. But that would be probably a subject for a slightly different conversation and maybe even a different different podcast. Tamar, thank you so much for your time today. This was this was this was really enlightening and I hope it helps bring even more public attention to, to your book, Displaced Ukrainian Refugee Experience. So from Dalibor Rohaj and Giselle Donnelly and Yulia Zoza. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges arising along the line from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea. Many thanks to our special guest today, Tamar Jacobi. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, AEI.org, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag EasternFrontPod, written as one word. We should also say that the Eastern Front newsletter is now live. We just sent out uh, the, the new issue this morning. You can sign up for the newsletter through the link included in the show notes. You'll receive every other week an update of newly released episodes exclusive q a with julia giselle and myself and you'll stay up to date with the most recent op-eds and articles and other work we are producing uh, on security challenges facing the eastern front if you enjoyed this episode please consider subscribing rating and reviewing us thank you and goodbye